All right, we are recording. We'll shoot for 20, 25 minutes if possible. That's a lot to cover in 20, 25 minutes. All right. All right, welcome to the weekly Pastors Talkback Edition. This past Sunday, Bryce finished our study in Nahum for us, and we had a couple of questions come in in light of that teaching. So um, three uh, questions in particular. So before we hit that, um, just give me a, just a, a brief summation of what the quarantine life has looked like for the Markham and the Harrison clan. The Markhams are um, doing a lot of what we've been doing. We've uh, Audrey's about eight and a half weeks old. And so we feel like we've just been quarantining for about eight and a half weeks. Cause right when we were ready to get out, come to church, do our thing. Then we were here with the quarantine. So we're just, uh, we're just enjoying life. We're doing walks every night, um, staying away from people. Um, but it's all, it's all been good. Yeah, love it. Uh, and quarantine in the Harrison, Harrison household usually looks like jumping outside on the trampoline and then coming in to play hockey on the living room floor and then cleaning up all of the bloody noses and putting ice on all of the bruised eyes from two toddler boys. Living the dream. I love it. Yeah, mine is mine is much the same, much the same. We've got uh, a lot of Legos currently spread all over our kitchen table and um, stuck to my feet right now. And uh, yeah, just living the dream. Cool. So uh, in studying Nahum, um, a, a lot of our questions and a lot of our teaching has centered on just the reality that God is a God both of um, love, compassion, grace, kindness, but he's also a God of wrath. And one of the points that we've wanted to make throughout is that God's love, grace, and kindness is not at odds in any way with what the scripture teaches us of his, of his wrath and justice. In fact, wrath and justice are applications of his love. Um, but one of the questions that came in in light of the uh, teaching on Sunday was regarding annihilationism. I'll, I'll read the question and then we can kind of explain annihilationism. The question says, can you specifically address annihilationism? I had a professor espouse this doctrine, and she said that sending people to hell forever does seem petty, and that really the most loving thing to do when someone rejects you is to just let them go, not punish them forever. So, first, let's, let's define annihilationism, talk about maybe some of the places where scripture would seem to um, uh, promote this particular doctrine, and then assess uh, annihilationism on the basis of other scriptures and on the teaching of the church um, over the, the course of church history, um, and then provide a little bit of theological reasoning for the, the sort of traditional view of hell. Um, so either of you guys want to take a stab at what annihilationism is? So annihilationism is essentially the belief that, that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell, but, but rather... Uh, seemingly upon death will be extinguished. They, they won't last kind of for eternity. They, there will be a time when um, unbelievers come to an end. Their death will just be the end rather than uh, suffering for, for eternity um, in hell. So, you know, there's, there's kind of an attractiveness to it just due to the awfulness of thinking about people, you know, spending eternity uh, in hell. Yeah, and some so there's there would be some whatever general biblical support for a view like that that could be derived from so the most one of the most prominent 
metaphors for what judgment after afterlife looks like is the idea of death that there's there's life and there's death so for us kind of seated here below the clouds on earth death looks like ceasing to exist um and so from that you, you could kind of derive that the that that metaphor is is intended to to communicate that the, the punishment that comes from for for sin and wickedness is to die to to be extinguished to no longer to no longer exist or to be annihilated in the kind of formal sense of the word completely done away with hence the name annihilationism and this is to be distinguished from something like uh universalism which says that all people will be saved in some form or fashion all people will be welcomed into uh, the new heavens and the new earth this teaches that upon death those who reject christ will be annihilated will be completely eradicated as opposed to um, some sort of conscious eternal punishment, uh, which is the traditional kind of framing of the doctrine of hell. Um, I know uh, some, I've read some annihilation folks who hold to annihilationism. They've, they pointed to passages like John three sixteen, 16. Um, let's say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so perish is contrasted with eternal life. They, they, they perish, they're annihilated. Um, or Matthew 10, when Jesus says, don't fear the one that can kill the body as he's commissioning his disciples, he says, fill the one, uh, fear the one who can kill both body and soul or, or destroy both body and soul, I think is the, the word that's used there. And so again, seems to sound like that there's something being said about the, a, a kind of permanent, snuffing out that's that's god's judgment and, and aaron i think you're right that there is an appeal to this because the doctrine of hell is is tragic and this at least on the surface feels um more merciful it's it retains an element of god's wrath and his holiness and justice um for um dealing with sin but it's um it it's it's annihilationists would would say it's uh um, it's, it's, uh, limited. It's, it's kind of a one and done. God pours out his judgment. Um, the person is punished and, and is annihilated. And that's the end of it. Of course, I mean, we have to, we have to assess and wrestle with beliefs on the basis of scripture. And, um, we, we can't let our, um, your or my squeamishness drive the combo. Uh, we've got to be biblical about it. So what, what would be some scriptures that um, would point to hell being something more like an eternal conscious punishment rather than kind of a one-time annihilation? Any scriptures come to mind for you guys? Yeah. So, so one, I mean, one that comes to mind for me is revelation 20. Um, and before I, I read that, I wanted to, to say too, like just kind of from like what Trevor's saying from a philosophical standpoint so there's a difference uh in in the in the sermon this this week we kind of asked we we read through nahum two and three and we watched we, we looked at god's judgment of the wicked and then we kind of took a step back and asked the question uh how sh how should a merciful god respond to the to these things that exist um and concluded yes exactly like he responds in nahum two and three he, god is merciful and he he responds rightly 
there's there's danger in kind of reversing the order of those two things rather than reading scripture and then pausing to ask how should a merciful god respond if you flip that order and you start by saying what would god do if he was merciful in the way that i understand merciful to be and then construct kind of a hypothetical idea of what how you think god should respond and then go read scripture in light of that that hypothetical response that you've developed. Those are those are two very different things from the way that we kind of took a step back and paused to ask a question of, of the passage that we are reading. Um, because because scripture is clear about the way that God operates and we want to we want to read that first and then and then make our decisions based from there. So passages like Revelation 20, um, it talks about the defeat of Satan uh, starting in verse 7. Um, it talks about uh, that, that Satan goes and, and um, deceives the nation, gathers them for battle. Their number is great, uh, like the sand of the sea. They're, they're marching against the earth. Uh, and, then, and then eventually they're, de- they're defeated. The devil and those who he's deceived from among the nations are, it says, are thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So just the language of torment forever and ever would seem to to be very contrary to be snuffed out in a moment and then cease to exist. Yeah, that's good. And and thinking about, you know, it goes on just a few verses later talking about the fate of the unsaved also going into lake of the fire, lake of fire. So why would why would there be a difference between Satan, the beast, the false prophet and then the fate of the unsaved also going into the lake of fire. And it's also like lake of fire is kind of an interesting language because when you think about it from a human point of view, another Lord of the Rings reference, think about being like thrown into uh, Mordor, going down in the fire where the ring, you know, is dissolved. Like, oh, you just dissolve, that's it. But we do have to think of us as kind of body and soul, um, that that the soul very much um, plays a part. I also think about... Um, Matthew 24, uh, 31 through 46 talks about kind of as a final judgment passage, but just specifically verse 46. And these talking about kind of the people who were evil uh, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So kind of how Trevor, you know, highlighted um, perishing and eternal life. You can right there put up against each other, eternal punishment and eternal life, which obviously we would hold up that there is eternal life. Um, and even just Acts 24, talking about the resurrection of both the just and the unjust, there seems to be a resurrection that's coming, um, both, of the, both of the just and the unjust, and then something is going to happen. Um, and it seems to, to be that they, these bodies would be prepared for um, these kind of resurrected bodies for something in eternity. That's, that's good. That's really helpful. Another passage I think of is, Second Thessalonians one nine it says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, um, so it, it speaks to the uh, eternal nature and, and even almost kind of paradoxical way of describing that eternal destruction um, of the wicked, uh, and then he kind of unpacks what that consists of um, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So that's I think off the top of my head, I think that's the most explicit way of speaking about hell as a place of, of distancing. And if we think about death, not in terms of, um, not in terms of snuffing, snuffing out, um, but in terms of distance, then that makes sense that there's an eternal death, an eternal destruction, a uh, being away from the presence of the Lord and from 
the glory of his might. That is the um, um, reality, so to speak, of hell. Um, what about some theological reasoning? How can we kind of sort this out theologically? Um, how is eternal um, punishment for, you know, average person lives to be, you know, 75, 80 years old. How is eternal punishment um, the fitting the fitting punishment for someone who lived a life, uh, who did not believe in God, who, who rejected salvation in Christ for, say, 75, 80 years. How, how do those two things balance out? How do we theologically get there? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah, so, so one, uh, one of the other things that we discussed as we were kind of concluding in Nahum was that, that an aspect of God's judgment that derives from his holiness is that the the punishment fits the crime? That the judgment is always proportional to, uh, and in you, generally in in the same nature of the the offense that was was committed. Um, so, like, why on that grand of a scale, the only logical theological conclusion would be that because the offense was also on that grand of a scale, which we would say is is true because the offense is against a holy, perfect, righteous, uh, eternal God, then the, the offense is also uh, eternal and, and great in magnitude. Yeah, that's really good, Bryce. I was, I was really helped by you on Sunday talking through that, um, the, just how uh, the punishment kind of God going only according to his character, um, which I think is really helpful. I think another idea that, you know, we would have talked about uh, a number of months ago is that first and foremost, God is for his glory. So I think when we ask questions of, you know, doesn't it seem petty that he would send people to hell? And it's like, I, I, I understand the logic for sure. Um, but we also got to recognize we're dealing with a God who first and foremost is for his glory, um, which all it, it, it's kind of contrary to say he's not first and foremost for me, which he is for me and he does love me and he will pour out his grace upon me, but he first and foremost is for his glory. And so his glory has deemed um, that this would be, this would be the way of, of life. And I was even thinking Bryce of um, you mentioning um, before we got on the podcast about first Corinthians two of, for a different question that we're going to answer, but who has the mind of God? Like, in some ways, God is so much greater than us. And and maybe that's one of the like huge potholes that we fall into theologically is that we, to us, the glory of God is a more petty issue than it should be. Like the glory of God is not a is not a small petty concern for God. It's actually His main driving pursuit, uh, and and should be for for us as well. That's really helpful. Yeah. If there's, um, if God is the most glorious, uh, most valuable, most, um, praiseworthy being then to, uh, in all of existence, then any sort of act against that being would necessitate a sort of punishment fitting that kind of violating that kind of being. So, an illustration that we've used before and even talked about a moment ago was like, there's a different, there's different legal ramifications for harming a puppy than there is for a human. And you can, I mean, it doesn't matter if that puppy belongs to a rich person. I mean, it doesn't, 
it doesn't matter. Like a, there's diff, different legal ramifications for harming a puppy than there is for harming a person. It's because we recognize that the sin is in some ways weighted by virtue of what's being sinned against. And if we, if we recognize that at the very bottom, all sin is against a glory, a glorious holy God, then we have to, we have to say that hell is the only appropriate sort of response to that, that sort of act. And to uh, to avoid offending all of the uh, puppy lovers out there, you could also say that if I threw a rock at my brother, the punishment would be being grounded. If I threw a rock at the president of the United States, like I'm going to jail, just solely based on on the position. Yeah, sorry, trigger trigger warning for puppy lovers. Um, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, and, and of course, I mean, this, this is, hell is probably the most difficult Christian doctrine for, for, for many people. Um, it is one of those hard edges that we just, we can't get around. Uh, but it, it is very important that we don't take hell in isolation from the gospel, that we don't consider hell in a vacuum from the rest of the story. Um, because the, the, the God of the gospel is not a cruel, vindictive, petty God. He is a God of glory. Um, uh, of holiness and the chief way that that's manifested is in his offer of salvation in Christ. Um, the, the, the other side of that is of course, if we reject Christ, we go to hell, but we are given uh, access to God himself on the basis of works that we did not do. We are given salvation and grace on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And so we must, when we talk about hell, talk about it within the fullness of the picture of, of the God of the gospel. Anything else you guys would add to that? I'm just going to say, like, it seems like, so it, if you kind of read through the redemptive narrative, uh, it seems like when sin kind of enters the equation, uh, everything is on a downward trajectory to, to hell. Everything begins to dis- deteriorate. Everything, everything begins to fall apart into, and kind of descend into brokenness. So, um, so e- like God sending people to hell is, is not even like a kind of, um, petty like him plucking them out and you know throwing them into destruction it's almost uh him kind of removing his the the providential hand and and allowing allowing destruction to to take its place uh and so so the fact that god extends grace and saves us out of the gospel is is uh is merciful and is him in you know grace graciously intervening um so i think that this slightly changed your perspective when you don't see judgment as God vindictively intervening as much as you see it as your, your natural trajectory that you're headed for, unless God were to intervene otherwise. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. I was, I was helped by, there's an article that you could go look up on Gospel Coalition by Gavin Ortland. It's just called J.I. Packer on why annihilationism is wrong. And his just first sentence is the doctrine of hell is the most difficult aspect of the Christian faith for many people. And then he acknowledges it is for me as well. Um, But then he goes on to talk about St. Anselm. And he says, St. Anselm once said, we should give thanks for whatever the Christian faith we can understand with our minds. But when we come to something we don't understand, we should bow our heads in reverent submission. Um, and I thought that was really, really, really helpful. And um, he summarizes that J.I. Packer talking about annihilationism had kind of two summaries that hell should not be abstracted from the gospel 
and then second, views about hell should not be determined by considerations of comfort, um, which obviously hell is not a comfortable thing to to discuss. Um, so I think we've you know attempted to do here as best we can be biblical and and theological in honor of the Lord. That's really good. Um, really helpful. And there, there's a lot more that can be said about that. And I, I really appreciate all of those points. Um, this question was also sent our way um, in light of some of what Bryce addressed on Sunday. Um, if humanity's wrath and the execution of that wrath is flawed, shouldn't the death penalty be wrong for us to carry out? I recently read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and he, he uh, points to case after case after case where systemic racism and prejudice put innocent or mentally handicapped people on death row. It seems to me that in a broken system, true justice, true justice and godly wrath cannot be executed. So what do you guys think of that? I think that, you know, first and foremost, we are going to be a people who hold up the value of human life from conception to the grave. And I think when we think about um, the death penalty, that we can, we can come to differing convictions. This would be maybe in our third tier. We have first tier doctrines that, that we're united in, that, that orthodoxy says we need to believe. Second tier, we're kind of maybe a little divided on as, as we do church, um, you know, related to baptism, third tier, or maybe more issues we can differ on as, as different Christians. And this would, I, I think would be, would be one, um, because I, I think even myself, I might hold, um, you know, I, I think, honestly, I haven't wrestled through this too much until honestly this question. So I may have slightly different convictions than, than you two guys as I'm, I'm wrestling through, but I do think as, as we think about the death penalty, um, if, if we conclude that it's good, and I, I think you can very much conclude that it is, it is right and it is um, a thing that, that, that can be there, um, especially from um, places like Romans 13 with um, Paul talking about God giving government authority, that it's one thing to agree that the death penalty is good in theory, which is kind of how we'll talk about it a little bit, but then it's, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with its application specifically um, in the U.S., that the the death penalty could be executed unjustly and with flaws, um, and not necessarily be done uh, correctly. Yeah, and so I think kind of along those lines, um, if and when it is carried out, I think it falls under kind of under the similar similar like ethical umbrella for me as. Um, as like killing during during an, as an act of war, as a soldier, um, which in the world of Christian ethics through the through the centuries, as as believers have wrestled with what does that duty look like, they've 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 landed in different places. Some some have landed as pacifists and refused military service, and some have have accepted it honorably and and seen it as part of their Christian and civic duty, um, and have. have land in different places um, but one of the kind of reverberating principles through the through the history of christian ethics has been the idea of the mournful soldier like the soldier that doesn't carry out his duty lightheartedly and and gleefully but does so with like a weight of responsibility on his shoulders and i think we have to have the conversation around the death penalty with the same with the same demeanor there's a reason why um when um when they execute people by firing squads, it's more than just one person pulling the trigger. 
uh, because it's it's a weight to not be borne by one person. It's a duty to be to be carried out corporately. Uh, there's a reason that even when we used the electric chair or did use the electric chair, it was not one switch. There was a there were dummy switches and one switches switch that actually worked and that people would flip simultaneously. Um, so there was no like no one actually knew who was turning the the real switch um, because it was not a weight to be carried out by one person, um, you know, flippantly. It was uh, it was to be borne by um, to be born corporately and to be done, to be carried out seriously. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I think, um, I think any talk of, of the death penalty, I think has to also recognize the provisional nature of these sorts of things. Um, the fact that these are not, um, these are not ideal but these are realities of being in a fallen world um, and are necessary by virtue of the fall. And so, right, so if you conclude, and I do, think, I do think we have to conclude that there is some kind of punitive authority that God has granted to governing authorities um, for the sake of our well-being um, and to, to you know, discourage wrongdoing. Um, I think we do have to conclude that from Romans 13. And I do think that the best reading of the sword there is is the death penalty. Um, and so maybe that's one, if we're kind of going to set up bumpers that it's safe to kind of play with them. I think that'd be one bumper. Um, I think the other bumper would be um, acknowledging that any authority that the governing authorities do possess is derivative and that it's ultimately under God's authority. And that they are not therefore granted a blank check to do whatever it is that they deem fit. And so we can, if, if governing authorities are being unjust, we can, we can call it, we can speak to the injustice that they um, commit and, you know, perpetuate uh, doing it on the basis of, of the fact that they are accountable to God and they are not, a, a, they too are under the law, uh, under God's law. Um, it is a, it is a really sticky situation and, and it is probably one of those things it's best to say is a third tier issue, especially uh, I think the, um, the application or the specific evaluation of any one system, I would say. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that's been a part of Christian ethical tradition for a, a very long time. And, and there are Christians that are all over the map on this. Um, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, that's, that's, that's helpful. And, and I think it's, um, you know, we, we see God institute capital punishment in, in, in the old, in the old Testament, you know, Genesis nine, six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed uh, for God made man in his own, in his own image. So even what you guys have been saying, it's, there's very, there's something very, very wrong and bad about killing a man. But then there's also differences in the old Testament against, um, you know, voluntary manslaughter and, and premeditated murder. And that's where we get, you know, the cities of refuge and, we see God show mercy at certain times, you know, seemingly David probably should have faced, you know, the death penalty, maybe in some ways, you know, taking Bathsheba and then also kind of had, you know, handling Uriah's death, but, but somehow mercy is shown and really each and every kind of sin we commit Romans six is going to say, you know, the, the, the wages of that is, is death, but God does show his love for us in Christ. So I even think 
um, I was reading some earlier that, that a lot of the institution of the death penalty, or at least some of the people that were okay with the death penalty at the beginning of the U.S. was to encourage repentance, um, to, to try to hold out um, this terrible, obviously this terrible punishment, but to, to push people towards um, Christ and towards really the weight of their life and the weight of what they've done. Um, and then Romans 13, I was helped by a John Piper quote where he just says Roman thir- Romans 13 sets it up so that the government carries the sword to reward the good and to punish the evil because society won't work if governments don't carry swords, prisons, fines, death penalties. Um, that essentially the government has to do that. And I've also been really helped. C.S. Lewis has some really helpful kind of sermons that he did on um, pacifism and war right in the midst of World War II, um, where honestly I've struggled with, yeah, why, why, is war okay? Is that okay? And he essentially highlights, you know, if we don't, if, if no one does anything, sin is going to run rampant and um, conquering is, is going to happen. So we have to, we have to be willing to protect to a certain level. Yeah. So that Romans 13 uh, passage is like also is, is pretty explicit that that, that that is the government's role to like specifically says is to be a terror to bad conduct. Like that's how it, how it puts it in the SV. Like the government should be a terror to bad conduct. Um, I was telling Aaron, it almost feels like, so, so if we see that that's a God given role, um, but, but we are trying to like wrestle through, we can't do that perfectly. Like we don't have infinite knowledge of all of the particulars. It almost kind of feels like to me, um, so I use the analogy of, uh, there's always, I'm always reading some new article about something they discovered about some type of food and why you shouldn't give it to your children because there's some chemical in some brand of peanut butter somewhere that's going to give your children cancer in 35 years. Um, but if I were to read all of those and decide I cannot decide what perfect nutrition for my children looks like because uh, I don't know all of the I don't have all of the unknowns and so I'm going to conclude by uh, just refusing to put dinner on the table um, to make sure that I avoid all of those things uh, I'm going to be like co- I'm going to be committing a, a greater wrong in the meantime uh, the their hunger is going to kill them a lot sooner than the, you know, than the, the chemical would 25 years later. So I think it, there's some comfort in knowing that even if we can't make decisions perfectly, we can make decisions well. Like that's, that's the role that ethics play. Uh, even if you, even if we can't operate with perfect knowledge, we can operate with wisdom. Um, and that's, that's why wisdom is elevated so highly throughout scripture, because I mean, the definition of wisdom is, is acting rightly within gray areas acting rightly without all of the known factors man that's really helpful and there's so much more that could be said about both of these issues and we had a third question we were going to get to today but for time's sake we're going to go ahead and land the plane uh we'll just have to produce another episode of this to answer the third question can't wait uh so yeah thank you guys for taking some time um uh, appreciate those of you who submitted questions. Uh, this is this has been really helpful for us, and it helps us as teachers and preachers, and uh, just helps us as as believers to sharpen our thinking and uh, just clarify what our convictions are on some of these things as well. So, uh, Aaron, Bryce, thank you, listeners, thank you. We'll talk to you guys soon. Till next time. <laughs>